Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bonner along with my colleague over at the Athletic Philadelphia, Mike O'Connor. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty well, man. Better than the Sixers are. Um, I don't think anybody is doing pretty well. After that performance against the Brooklyn Nets, a 25-point drubbing to the Brooklyn Nets, in which really, you know, I'm going to stop short in saying that the Sixers were exposed because I think that was the worst version of a game that they'll play. But I do think that they highlighted a lot of their weaknesses in terms of winning one-on-one battles on the perimeter, both offensively and defensively, the lack of shot creation they have from the perimeter, the reliance on a three-point shot, and quite frankly, the reliance on Joel Embiid to drop a 40-10 and game in order for them to really look like they're playing good basketball. And there's a lot that goes into that, and we'll get into all of that. But it was not the most encouraging game they've ever played. That is for damn sure. Yeah, I mean, that game just took all of the Sixers' flaws and highlighted them to the biggest, the highest degree possible. Um, it, it was so bad. I mean, everything, uh, I think the biggest thing that, that really stood out was what Brooklyn's backcourt did to the Sixers on both ends. Um, you look at guys like D'Angelo Russell and Karis LeVert able to create one-on-one offense easily against Sixers perimeter players. Um, and then on the opposite end, like Sixers, you know, their, their guards can't break them down in the half court, and those are mediocre defenders. Um, you know, when the Sixers are they, – they lead the league in body and ball movement, and we all agree that's a great thing, but at a certain point, that catches up to you. And when you have to work that hard and move that much just to create a contested long two for J.J. Redick, it, it really catches up to you. Like they don't have that source other than Embiid to just give the ball to and, and get a bucket and create it, and they don't have anyone on the perimeter. I mean, imagine if you're the Sixers and you're going up against maybe the worst defensive backcourt in the league. I'm not saying that that's the Nets. I'm just saying as an example, like who would you trust to create or to create offense against them to break them down one on one? There is no one. There is no one you would trust. Um, it, that that game just really, like I said, it just highlighted all of the concerns with this roster, and I, I think there's there's really a, a dark cloud over that game. Yeah, and I think that's why a lot of times last year when, when they were struggling through their turnover problems, which, which got better towards the end of the season, but I think when they were struggling towards it, I always felt like that was sort of misplaced. I thought that was looking at the you know the end result of not having the talent or, or more specifically the skill sets needed than it was a, you know, anything with scheme or with, you know, you can't just walk up and be like, hey, stop turning the ball over. You need somebody who can break their man off the dribble, somebody who can turn the corner off the pick and roll, somebody who the defense has to really account for and rotate towards. Because right now everything they do is so difficult. Like you said, they have to work really hard just to get a, a long mid-range two from J.J. Redick. I mean, dribble handoffs with Redick have basically replaced pick and roll offense, and they don't have anything that would really replace a dribble drive game. So it's just, okay. So I, I guess we'll start off with the two point guards who won't and can't shoot because that seems like a logical place to go. And one of them specifically drafted to address the Sixers lack of, lack of perimeter shot creation. We, I think have been pretty positive on this podcast as it relates to Markel Fultz. And certainly in what we've written. Because I think right now, through the first 10 games of the season, we've mostly been looking for flashes. Like, that looks like a reasonable facsimile of the player that we've seen at Washington. That looks like someone who you can see 
skill coming off the pick and roll. That looks like someone you can see growing as a finisher around the rim, even if that's tough, as a 20-year-old, basically, rookie guard. But I think, by and large, with the exception of the Clippers game, that hasn't led to a productive, positive NBA player. And I think, for the most part, we've been okay with that. You know, like I said, I think right now you're looking for glimpses more than you're looking for productivity. But the fact of the matter is, until he really becomes a threat to shoot, it's going to be very hard for him not to be a negative player. And when you combine his weaknesses with Ben Simmons' weaknesses, that is a lot to overcome in the half court. I mean, I I tweeted this out earlier today. Ben Simmons is shooting 29% outside of five feet. Markel Fultz, 28%. And that's not being propped up by, you know, a lot of times those shots in that range are being substituted for three-point shots with a higher effective value. That's not the case with these guys. So it is going to be a challenge. I like the fact that they are staggering those minutes as much as possible. You know, earlier, first five games of the season, I think they were playing about 14 minutes a game together. And that was way too much. They're just you, you can't have two non-shooters on a court that, that amount of time. And over the last six or so games, they've played, I think, about five minutes a game together. Basically that first stint in the first quarter, and that's it, which I think is a lot more reasonable. But at some point, and look, Okay, so we focused a lot on Markel Fultz this summer and rebuilding that jump shot. But realistically, he's been working on, they've been trying their hardest to get his shot back on track for a solid 13 months now. Ever since he came to camp, they've been working on getting that shot back to where it was. He he never stopped working on that shot. And you've had a lot of different voices involved in there. You had, obviously, Keith Williams last summer. Then you had the Sixers' own personal coaches. Then you had some outside voices the Sixers brought in. Abdul Rauf being the, the the main one. Then you had Drew Hanlon over the summer. So he's had a lot, and he had a little bit of Keith Williams mixed in the middle there last winter, which the team wasn't too thrilled about. So we've had a lot of voices mixed in there trying to get Markel back on track. But he's been working on this for quite some time. And I think we've both been impressed with his mid-range pull-up, his 15-foot pull-up, form-wise. Not necessarily quantity, but form-wise, I think it's further along than we would have expected. But that three-point shot specifically off the catch, but really outside of that one pull-up three he made, he hasn't had any point where he's either looked confident taking it or where the form looks comfortable. That looks so far that I think that clouds at least my own personal opinion and makes me a little bit down on where they're going from here. And then you mix in Ben Simmons. And look, you know, he worked out with his brother this summer. I think you can make the case that maybe you target the best coach you can find to rebuild that jump shot. But I think his brother is a viable coach. Like I don't think he's, uh, you know, I, I think he knows what he's doing. But to come back, and he doesn't have any interest whatsoever. Forget about the three. You know, he made he made the comment before the season that, look, I'm not going to come out here shooting threes. I didn't have any problem with that whatsoever. I thought that would have been an unrealistic ask. But do not even have a 10-foot jumper in your arsenal. I mean, he's had two NBA off-seasons. It, it, it's, it's very... It's frustrating. They, they, they need those guys to improve in that regard. They need it to in the worst way. And if you're looking for me to tell you you should have confidence they're going to get there, I'm not sure I can provide it right now. I have more confidence in Fultz. At least he's made some progress out to 15 feet. But they're both a very long way away. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, in terms of Markel, I think that, like we both said, that that 15-foot that pull-up, that form – 
you know, if you saw it 15 months ago, you wouldn't bat an eye. Like, it, it looks fine. But what's what's the issue right now is obviously his willingness, but there's almost this, this need to, before he goes up into his pull-up in the pick and roll, to, like, contemplate it in his head and almost, like, script what he's about to do in his head. Um, and that, that can't happen. He does this little dance, like, right before he goes up into his pull-up. And that, that's that's not – that makes the shot almost, like, half as valuable because – you don't have – it's not going to affect a pick-and-roll coverage in the way that it, that it would if you were to just rise up into it. Because if you were to just – instead of dancing around just like a normal guard would to rise up and hit a pull-up, that would actually make defenses think twice about a drop coverage. And you could maybe pull a big man out, hit him with a hesitation, and get by him. But because he's not doing that and because he has to dance around so much before he goes into it, the shot is almost always going to be contested, and it's almost always going to – not have value to set anything else up in the pick and roll. Um, and that's really concerning. That's really concerning. And, and, you know, I think, I think our only real takeaway through 11 games or whatever is there's really no certainty as to um, what, what circumstances will warrant a Marco Fultz jump shot. Like why did he take a pull up three off the dribble against uh, Orlando? I think it was whatever team that was. And he still is, he won't, he hasn't taken a single other three off the dribble in 11 games, and he still won't shoot uh, a lot of opportunities from, from three from catch and shoot. There, there just doesn't seem to be a rhyme or reason as to what is dictating his, his confidence. And it's strange. It's, it's strange to get a grasp on. Um, yeah, I, 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 and, I, and as we've said many times, there's no precedent for this thing. We have no idea if or when it will improve or it will click, but right now it is it is not tenable with Ben Simmons. And look, I it, confidence is one aspect to it, but even just the form on the catch-and-shoot shots, it's so far away from something that's repeatable and accurate and something that he's comfortable. It just doesn't look like a comfortable shot that it's, it's – I can't even – if it was just confidence and it was just his desire to, to pull up – and that, look, that's a huge part in this for sure – but the form just doesn't look like it's something he's comfortable with right now. And I don't know how you're going to fix that. Like, confidence, you can at least say, okay, well, maybe at some point in the season it clicks. Like, it just clicks. He's off the ground running, and, and, and we're back on track. That form, I don't know how he's going to have the, the repetition to really make that a comfortable shot throughout the course of the season. It's, it's I, I've, I don't know. This is very, and look. Ben Simmons can still be a dynamic player without that jump shot. That's perfectly true. And if you get a guy like, let's say, Bradley Beal, somebody else who can come in here and create half-court offense for you, which is why they drafted Markel, this isn't as big of a problem. It's not Ben Simmons' deficiencies aren't as big of a problem if the Sixers have viable half-court shot creators around him, but they don't, and that's exacerbating the problem right now. But Ben Simmons will also never be, while he'll succeed, and he might succeed at an incredible level, he will never be the best version of himself if he doesn't have a jump shot in his arsenal. If he doesn't have something to make defenders think twice about that coverage, about that drop coverage. And I'm not I, – I have no unrealistic expectations of a three-point shot. Like, that would be great, of course. I mean, shoot, Brooke Lopez can shoot a three. Like, you can grow that. Andre Drummond shot a three. Andre Drummond oh. – <laughs> I, I loved, I loved uh, Zoo's comment when he took that pull-around jumper. And Zoo actually said, like, did he really expect that to go in? Like, that was perfect, Zoo. I love that. 
But Aaron Baines doesn't know which foot to put forward, and he can make a spot three. I'm not even expecting that, certainly not in the foreseeable future. But you need a 15-footer. You need something off the dribble, some pull-up to make a defender think twice, and they just don't have it right now, and their half-court offense suffers with neither of those two having it. It's, it's, and I think, you know, I think Brett's rotations to start the year, and hashtag rotations, it's, it's the first criticism anyone ever has when the team loses. But I think they weren't, I, I, don't, I don't think they were good to start the year, uh, quite frankly. I thought Ben and Markel were playing too much together. Like I said, they're about 14 minutes a game. That's way too much. I thought TJ was playing too many minutes alongside Ben and Markel. Uh, if you're going to make Markel the, get all of the backup point guard minutes, which I think he should be getting, then it's hard to play TJ, and that's kind of what we said during our season preview pod. And I thought TJ was playing too much, and there was, you'd have two non-shooters on for way too long in the course of the game. I think they've largely corrected that. You know, TJ's out of the rotation. Uh, Markel and Ben pretty much only play that five minutes stint together. And you're getting a lot of lineups with J.J. Redick and Landry Shamit and either Muscala or Sharge. Theoretically should be three shooters alongside Ben or Markel and Joel. And I think those are lineups with hat, which hat, theoretically should space the floor as much as this team realistically can. And it's still just, it's hard to overcome point guards who will not and cannot shoot outside of five feet. And they're, they're, they're really seeing that right now. Totally. Um, and uh, let's also not forget that uh, Markel hasn't been great inside of five feet either. That's been an issue too. Um, I think that, that that's something that's really been overlooked is I personally have been concerned at his lack of ability to finish around the rim which I was pretty high on out of Washington. Um, I, I, I really liked you know, his, his finishing package around there, and that, that has not been there. And I, I don't understand why that part of his game has suffered as well. Like, he just had such a confidence and a poise and a diversity of moves around the rim to set up his finishes. And we, we really haven't seen that. Like, the only finish he goes to, occasionally he'll try to spin move. Occasionally he'll try to just rise up over everyone. We haven't seen anything else, anything else in terms of finishing package around the rim, which to me is concerning, and I, I don't particularly understand it. Um, and I, I will say that, that seems like the part of the game where confidence is really affecting him, not in a negative way, but in a way where he can swing his confidence. Like the catch-and-shoot three, I'm convinced right now there's nothing that will get him shooting that consistently. Like he's just – that he doesn't look like, like I said, he's comfortable and confident in his form in that shot. But when he makes, you know, the other night, I forget if it was probably against the Clippers, he had that one take to the rim, probably in transition, I think it was, that he made, and that was impressive. And it seemed like he then, he, he was much more willing to attack after that. He seemed like a switch flipped in terms of his confidence. But yeah, by and large, I mean, especially early in the season, it seemed like he was really hesitant once he got into the paint. It's been a little better lately, but like you said, it's nowhere near the kind of diversity we saw at Washington. Totally, and the worst the worst thing that can possibly happen, which has happened a lot, is when he will take the ball to the rim, get into the body of a big man, and then pass the ball back out to the perimeter. Like We've seen, I think, three or four plays where he is in midair, possibly even starting his descent and he decides to fling the ball over his shoulder out to the perimeter to, like, Embiid, who's floating on the three-point arc. And it's like, that that can't happen. That can't happen. There, there has to be a finish there, at least an attempt. Um, and and those, those situations at the rim are like the same ones that we see in pick-and-rolls 
where um, a guard will maybe fight under the screen and he has like a brief window where he could rise up and hit a pull up and he'll almost start to go into the shot pump fake and then just throw it back to him beat at the three point arc. And it's like, look, I don't, I don't care if, if that's, if that's the, the pass, you know, the right pass part of the time, like, sometimes that needs to be a jump shot from Markel. It, it just has to, and that has not been the case. <laughs> no, uh, no, it has not. Uh, all right. Uh, do you want to talk about the other guy who can't shoot outside of five feet? Yeah, let's talk about that guy. Okay, uh, real quick before we get to Sarge, though, a quick word from DraftKings. Basketball season is now back in full swing. with surprising storylines mixed throughout the league to generate excitement and also to provide opportunity to those who are ahead of the curve. It's time to put your basketball knowledge to the test with One Day Fantasy Basketball over at DraftKings, the fantasy site where one bad day on draft night doesn't have to ruin your entire season. DraftKings is giving away over $400 million in prizes this season. That's nearly $375 million more than Joel Embiid will earn from the Sixers. It's a lot of money. No matter what your skill level is, there's a contest waiting for you at DraftKings. Drafting your team is simple. Just select eight players and stay under the $50,000 salary cap. The best part is you get to draft a new team every day without commitment. There's no better way to turn your love of basketball into cash. To download the app, head on over to DraftKings.com and use our code SIXERS to support the show and to enter a free contest with your first deposit. And remember, there will be over $400 million in total prizes up for grabs throughout the season. That's code SIXERS to play for free with your first deposit. Only at DraftKings. Minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Okay, Dario Sharch. What in the hell do you do about Dario Sharch right now? Well, I I don't think you can bench him. I don't think it's good for that specific player or for, for a team to bench someone during a cold streak. I just I don't think that's the right thing to do. Um, I think you have to ride out, you know, what he's going through, and I, I'm confident the shooting will will come around, even if it's not to last year's level. Um, but I think that. I think that there are some valid long-term concerns in terms of Dario's fit with the starting lineup, and and I really think they've been overlooked uh, last year. I think great shooting kind of hid that. Um, but when he's on the floor with Ben and Joel, he really just gets relegated to a spot-up role, to just stand, drift on the perimeter, and hit catch-and-shoot threes. And it's like if you're going to have someone in your starting lineup that is playing that role to just float on the perimeter and hit threes, why not have someone who also can be closeouts or who can attack off the dribble or can defend multiple positions? And Dario does none of those things. And it, it really makes me question if that's the best use of him and the best fit for the starting lineup. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned defense briefly, but that has really stood out to me this year. And I don't know why... It, it didn't stand out as much last year because I, I don't think he's gotten worse, but it just seems like this year he's getting targeted more. And it really just boils down to him being a complete one position defender, not able to venture out. Like he can't, he can't even guard Al Horford, who's six nine. Um, and, and it, he just has such a tough time guarding anyone who basically isn't exactly like him athletically. Um, like Blake Griffin just had the easiest time in the world scoring over him. And, you really have to question if Dario long-term makes sense in that starting lineup because you, you think about, you know, if this team's goal is to play in the finals, not only this year but but moving forward, if that's their goal, 
Like, what players in recent years can you think of that are like him athletically that played a role in the NBA Finals? Like, the most recent one is Boris Diaw, and I'm not even sure that that would be uh, that would be as tenable now as it was in 2014. Um, so I I have my my questions about Dario. I think I think I've I've said that multiple times uh, through the course of last year, but uh, the shooting will come around. But but like I said, a lot of long term questions there. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's a reason why last year they started off. You know, I, when we talked about the starting lineup after they drafted Markel Fultz, you know, we talked about Simmons and Fultz and Redick and Covington and Embiid, and that was kind of the expectation coming in. And you mix that in a little bit with Bayless because of how he theoretically fit, even though he's a train wreck. But you kind of looked – I always looked initially at – Cov and Simmons as your 3-4 defensive combo. And then Dario came in, and he made so many shots that you kind of overlooked all of the other concerns that you have, especially defensively. But you're right in that in his role, you know, if he's not making shots, it's hard for him to add value. You know, when Covington goes on a, a cold spell, he's still a really good team defender. He's still a, a really switchable, versatile, smart team defender. When Dario goes through a shooting spell. Rather than being a two or a three or a four position defender, he's like a point five position defender, and that really gets, you know, you you really get that that problem gets exacerbated when he's not able to make shots, when he's not able to space the floor. And look, when we talked over the off season about if Markel gets his mojo back, what's your starting lineup? And we argued whether or not. Cove or Sharge should come off the bench, and I think we all said Sharge should come off the bench. This is exactly why, because when he's not making shots, and it's 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 expected that he's going to go through slumps. I think this is probably worse than we would have expected, but in order for Dario to be a long-term starter, he has to be a 40% three-point shooter, and he has very little margin for error for that. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now, and it's it's been it's been it's been tough to watch. I agree with you that. Right now, you can't take him out of the starting lineup. Like it, it, or at least I wouldn't take him out of the starting lineup because I do think a lot of shooting is just variance, and I don't think that penalizing a guy for that makes a whole lot of sense. And I think there's some, you know, some confidence aspect to this. I think Dario is more comfortable as a starter, but I do think you know maybe rather than giving him a six minute run to start the game, you give him a four minute run. Maybe you cut one shift out. You cut his minutes a little bit. Brown's already had games where he's not in his closing lineup because, quite frankly, Mike Muscala is playing better basketball than him. I think that's what you do more than make a change to the starting lineup. But they need to get him back on track in the worst way. All these spacing concerns we talk about that are naturally inherent in a Fultz and a uh, Simmons starting lineup just get exacerbated when you have a guy shooting like 24% from three-point range or something like that. It's, it's really, it's really, I mean, he's he, he's been tough to watch, and I hate saying that because I like Dario. I like Dario a lot. He's typically very fun to watch. He's a great personality. But like you said, long-term, if you're targeting basically a catch-and-shoot player, and I think Dario has more skills than that, but in this role, that's basically what he is. You want one who can ideally attack a closeout, or even more ideally, defend multiple positions. Or at least someone like Reddick who can fly off of a screen and put pressure on defense that way. Right now, he's giving you none of that. Yeah, totally agree. And I agree that I agree that's what the right way to handle it is to kind of cut down his minutes with the starters and, you know, a four-minute run instead of a six-minute run to start the game. And 
even if you have to close games with Mescala, I think I think that's the right uh, the right course of action. But uh, I, I love the term you use, .5 position defender, because that 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 does kind of describe him on defense. Um, but yeah, those those long term like, questions. I think he's a smart defender. Like I think he makes his totally. rotations. He's just what, what does he have about two blocks so far on the entire season? And he doesn't have the foot speed to keep up with anyone. He he can only overcome that so much. I mean, there was a point, there was a sequence last night where Jared Dudley took him off the dribble and scored over him at the rim. And it's like, man, if Jared Dudley is doing that, like, <laughs> that, that is like, that is a really bad look for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, long term, it's, it's questionable. I mean, we've seen recent years, finals, like Kevin Love is basically like a further evolved form of Dario, and he's been a complete liability at times in the finals, like borderline unplayable. Um, so it's tough. It's tough, but uh, you know, I, I do think the shooting will come around. I think there will. I think that Dario will have stretches in the season where you know you almost forget that that he had this rough start. Um, but those long term questions will be there. For sure, for sure, and it'll be real interesting to see how they target players over the off season, and real interesting to see what they do when Dario's up for a new contract because that that's the kind of contract that could get a little. Could get a little dicey. Um, and, again, I say that as somebody who I think everybody loves Dario, loves the way he plays, loves the energy and the competitiveness he has, but his limitations when he's not making shots. And like you, I think he's going to eventually come around. I think he's going to make his shots and whether or not, you know, like I said, there's just a there's a big difference between Dario at 34, 35% from three and Dario at 40% from three. And there's so little margin for error that that is that, – that has quite the impact. Yep, Totally. So defensively, you know, I think we've talked a bit about their struggles at such start of the season and the rotations and how they weren't nearly crisp enough. And if you haven't, go check out Mike's article on that from earlier in the season over at theathletic.com slash Philly. What's been your impression of them lately? Better, uh, at least in team concepts. I think they've been better. I think we've seen fewer mistakes off the ball. Um I don't think, you know, they've given up some big numbers to mediocre offenses lately, but I don't think that's a product of miscommunications or, or things like that. I think a lot of it has just been that this team doesn't have that many great one-on-one defenders. They just don't. Um, I mean, you take you take Ben and Joel and Covington, and, and outside of them, like, who, who's your next best defender? Who, who, who is the person you would put on, like, on like a, a lead guard uh, to defend them. Is it Fultz? I mean, he's been better lately, but, you know, outside of him, it's like Fultz, Redick, uh, Saric, Shamit. I mean, none of, all of these guys, one-on-one, on the ball, are not good defenders. Just, like, not good. No, I mean, and, Fultz uh, is the only one who has the physical tools that can hope to compete, but he's so green totally. behind the ears that it's it's hit or miss very much. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that recent games we've just kind of seen, like, when uh, Covington, Simmons, and Embiid aren't the the focal point of of the the action on defense, it's really it's it's really concerning what this team shows, and just in terms of, just just in terms of the lack of good on ball defenders. And I think that's probably an issue that is fairly correctable. Like I think offensively, if you're talking about long term concerns and building around Embiid and Simmons, offensively getting that third initiator is. Could be tough. But defensively getting another defender, it's easier to find a Pat Beverly type than it is a Bradley Beal type. 
and I think they can rework this core where they can be an elite defensive team. I mean, they were third in the league last year. I think they'll. I think right now they're probably about 10th, and I think they'll probably get up in that top five range. I do think they're going to end up being a good defensive team, even if they're not playing great defensive ball right now. But there certainly are limitations that the role players just don't solve. And you're kind of in this spot now because Simmons and Embiid are so dependent on spacing that solving the defensive, building out the rest of your defensive team with role players might end up coming at the expense of spacing because it's hard to get somebody who does both. Like there just aren't that many Pat Beverly types out there that you can get. So I think they're going to err a lot on the side of shooting. You know, I think right now Redick is indispensable. Shamit off the bench has been really important lately. And it's going to be hard to find that kind of skill set in someone who can also get up and play pressure defense. I think that's going to be the issue they're going to have building their team forward. But I think that's a much more correctable problem. I mean, like I always say, when you start off with Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Robert Covington defensively, you should be able to figure the rest out. It's just I think they're going to make a lot of trade-offs in getting shooting in here. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, and probably the best example of that is uh, the guy they drafted, Zaire Smith. He's he's someone that could come in almost immediately and make a positive defensive impact but might be unplayable might on offense. Yep. Yep. That, that will be a real interesting decision. No, I don't have an update on when he's coming back. Um, I would assume that the latest info is still mid-December, but it's not something that I have any new information on. It will be real interesting to see how they integrate him back because adding in a, really, if you want to count TJ, then a fourth guard who can't and won't shoot outside of the paint. <laughs> that's a lot. That's a lot for 19, or that's a lot for 1988, and that's sure as heck a lot for 2018. Yeah. It definitely is. Um, should we should we riff a little bit about uh, Bradley Beal? Yeah, they they. I don't know how they can trade for him. I don't know either, and it's it's funny. I thought I thought recently about that poll uh, that that uh, Sixers Adam on Twitter Adam Anderson writes writes for Liberty Ballers um, put a poll out. It was after preseason, before regular season. Uh, would you trade Markel Fultz for Bradley Beal? And I believe the implication was straight up. And it was like 50-50. Yep. And I just remember thinking, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Like, No, it's Beal not. Because a- heading into the 20, what was it, 20, heading into Okafor's last season with the team, I put a poll up of um, Jokic versus, uh, versus Okafor, and it was 50-50 too. Yeah. So I think that yeah. one beats it, but this is, this is up there. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah the, the Okafor one is probably a little bit more ridiculous, but... Uh, Man, I mean, Beal is a 25-year-old all-star who's still improving and is signed through this year, next year, and the year after. Like, that—that that is, I can't think of many possible trade pieces who are who are more desirable than that. Um, and the, the issue and with Beal, so, like a lot of people will be like, oh, well, Jimmy Butler's not getting a lot. Why is Bradley Beal? Well, like you said, he's got three years left on his contract. He's 25. And he has the type of skill set. He has a very broad appeal. Every team in the league could drop Bradley Beal on their rotation, and he'd make an impact. And there are very few available players who you can say that about. And because of the fact that he's under contract and because of how many teams would be interested in him, that is going to drive up his price considerably. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think the Sixers' only hope for getting him is if – 
kind of like kind of like the Kawhi situation in San Antonio, is if the Wizards decide they first off Bradley Beal has to be the one to say I want out because the Wizards are not going to trade Bradley Beal just for shits. Well, I mean, um, we'll see. I mean, here's what I'll say. I think. John Wall is basically untradeable with that contract extension that's about to kick in, which hasn't even kicked in, and it's going to be a, a god-awful contract extension. Otto Porter is impossible to trade for value because of his contract. So I think if they're looking at, look, we need to change something. This is bordering on the definition of insanity. He's the only one you will get value for. So I think they might look at him and be like, okay, look, it's going to take a hell of an offer. You're going to have to blow us out of the water. But maybe they listen to it because everything else on that team is pretty much unmovable. Like maybe you you use him to get off of Otto Porter's contract as well. And we're all just speculating right now. There hasn't been any report about who or what will be available when the inevitable um, blow up of that team begins. But if they trade him, I think it has more to do with the fact that everybody else of, of note is on a very negative contract. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I, I, I hadn't thought about how much Beal is really the only guy you could you could flip like that. Um, look at look at Otto Porter. Also, He's making twenty six mil, averaging ten points a game. He's making sixteen million more than Robert Covington. Just think about that. <laughs> that's crazy. Although I will say, if if the Wizards are inclined to get out of that contract, and the Sixers come up completely empty next summer, maybe that's a guy you think maybe we want to take that contract on. Um, still a very good player. But anyway, back to Bradley Beal. Uh, he, the Wizards would have to decide they want to remain competitive now, and then the offer from the Sixers end would have to be something like Covington Sarge, the Miami pick, maybe Zaire Smith, maybe Markel Fultz. Like, but the, the, the core of it is Covington Sarge, Miami pick. And even that, like, I don't, I can't even think of who else would be involved league-wide, but that's not like a blow-you-out-of-the-water offer. I, I don't even think that gets it done in and of itself. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know. I'm struggling to see see how much many of the – I mean, Sarge's traded value is impacted not just by the fact that he's struggling, but, but by the fact that he's going to get paid relatively soon. Markel Fultz, I mean, I don't. I have no idea how to gauge his trade value, but I can't imagine it's all that high, except for a team looking to trade a – you know, go for a home run. Covington has value – but as a centerpiece for Bradley, like, that's the issue. The Sixers have additional pieces they can use in an offer. They don't have that centerpiece of an offer. And even, mm-hmm. the, even the future Miami pick might end up becoming a centerpiece if that team struggles, has to get blown up. Um, you know, there's a lot of time between now and then. But right now it's not a centerpiece of an offer. Like there's Zaire Smith isn't a centerpiece of an offer. There's, there's nothing they can look at and be like, look, if teams look at it as trades, like what's the the best asset generally draws the most value? The Sixers don't just don't they don't they don't they don't have that they don't have that blow you out of the water asset, and I think that's <laughs> and I think I think that's going to hurt them coming coming up. Yeah, completely. <sighs> but it is possible though. It is possible they. I mean, like I said, Washington really wants to stay competitive now and. They they they're targeting the Covington Sarge type of players who are in their primes and and that sort of thing. It, it is it is possible you could craft an offer, but certainly not over overwhelmingly likely. No, watching their trade trade capital dwindle away these last two years has been has been tough. They're locked in. They need they need they need to get something in free agency or they need Marco Fultz 
to be the player they thought he was, and they really need one of those two outcomes. Or or if Ben Simmons gets a jump shot and Embiid and Simmons are just so good that it almost doesn't matter, then they could. But to get that third star, the options are dwindling. All right, I don't think we need yeah. to dwell too long. We all watched that god-awful game against the Nets. We all know what the deficiencies are. So thank you for jumping on, and we will talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Contacted, I attract clientele. My mic check.